Put her on the mic. She got or the M and M's. She's got a heater in the pants, man. Oof. Oof. Got the whole damn fam here. Say hi to Scam. Right? That's not your dad, dad. <laughs> you know, I'm not your father. I am not. I am not your father. He's a friend of dad, dad. Yes. What's, what like. sound? What sound the horsey make? Daddy. No. What sound the horsey make? Daddy. <laughs> hey, we'll take it. Daddy. Can you say horsey? Can you make the horsey sound? Margs, do you have an opinion right now on Joe Rogan and if he should be banned from Spotify and if we should leave it too? What should happen to Joe Rogan? Okay. If he if Joe Rogan got kicked off Spotify, what would you be? Would you be, would you be happy? Happy. <laughs> What's up? Can you make the horsey sound? Can you go? What sound the horsey make? Happy. <laughs> happy. They are happy sometimes. It Can sounds like say, she's got a lot of positive energy. Is she pumped up for dinner, or did you already eat? Yeah, she was up there prepping broccoli. Right? Can you say broccoli? Can you say, can you say up? up? Can you say banana? Pear. Can you say pear? Pear. Can you say Georgie? Georgie. Can you say tree? Me. Can you say... Do you know where she picks say? up? Like, do you just teach her these words and eventually she like picks up on them? Is it through like reading all the time? Like... I do, we do read to her all the time. But okay. I don't know if necessarily that's where she's picking up. <laughs> Can you say Eminem? <laughs> Come here. <laughs> she, she's still eating Eminems. Give me your life story. So I did the grocery shop today. I'm in Rhode Island. Uh, Love it. I'm at uh, Command Post K, so to speak. And uh, I did the grocery shop by myself today. Like I had to drive to this place called like Dave's. Like Fresh a big boy. Yeah, like a big boy. Like Picked I picked up a bunch of double barrel boing boings from the top shelf. <laughs> so like, <laughs> like all right. So so like Dave's Fresh Market. It's like a, a upscale like Roche Brothers, or to some others like maybe like a, like an upscale Big Y if you're in Western Massachusetts. But like, I don't know what any of those things are. Oh, you don't know what any of those things are. Like, but, yeah, they're just local grocery stores, but they're like they have so, like, so, good a niche quality, grocery. Like, but like they have good quality like prepared food is like what like one of their major sections is is like you always feel like you're getting quality like food that's already like cooked up so like a smaller Wegmans like a smaller Wegmans yeah 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 more artisan crunchy Wegmans yeah yeah and so I go to the we go to the one in Cumberland look at George look at I drove today too wow through two yeah, rotaries that's, that's really what I was taking out of the. Uh, the story but you call okay. rotaries that's what roundabouts are right? roundabouts don't them in european terms the roundabouts but long story short about dave's is like i'm an early bird shopper i like to get there before all the like rush hits and shit like that but there's definitely another rush that i forgot about which is like the early bird rush for our senior citizens and yeah. i realized after doing like a good half hour of hitting the grocery list and doing everything you have to do for like an ina recipe or whatever there's this like crisis going on because when i pulled up to the daves there was a fire truck and i was like oh shit, maybe it's a fire alarm but no one's like outside so it must be not a fire i end up like getting around to the meat section and there's like an 80 year old dude that definitely like fell and probably like broke his hip or something oh. and i've never seen such a chaotic situation created in this one like bottleneck of the meat section where so many people just wanted to get there. So many senior citizens wanted to get their meat and they could not like get their meat because of this incident. I was looking around and I noticed at how small our older people have gotten. And I feel like maybe that is like an evolutionary thing. 
that I'm still trying to like comprehend, but shrinkage. Yeah, I can't believe it. I can't believe how tall I feel to like a lot of these people. And of course, like I'm I'm the nice guy. Like, you know, no, go ahead in front of me. Like, no, I'll move. Like, I'm a big boy. I can literally lift this entire cart by myself to move out of the way. Whereas you would, you know, need to navigate it. Like, no, let me and it's just so funny how many times I'm like walking through the aisle and they're not thinking that I'm the help, but they clearly are the ones that are just like they cannot reach the top shelf for this item. So I, I was asked at least four times in this given day to like help people get their shit off these shelves. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I've never felt such like an effective member of society after <laughs> today's grocery shop. <laughs> like, the ambivalent like, dictator of Dave's. <sighs> But I, I was just amazed at how many how many of our elders are just like small beans. And they, you know, they don't move along. They don't move fast. And I, I think like, you know, you got to have a lot of patience when you do a grocery shop. I just wanted to point that out being like, my God, people are looking at this dude that just literally fell in the meat section and having like the carriage or whatever, the freaking thing that they, the, the stroller roll out and they're like putting them in it. And I'm just like, this is a moment of like self-reflection for a lot of people here. This is tragic. Block it off. You know, they didn't even block it off well. I mean, how do you think those people you helped out vote, though? Considering it's, like, Cumberland. <laughs> considering it's, great. like... It's, no, it's it's actually not, like, awful. It's not Woonsocket. And it's Jeff not fucking... Deal country? It's not fucking Woonsocket, and it's not fucking uh, Warwick. This is not the first time you hear. I think what is this? The fourth time you've been on this podcast now. I believe this is my fourth guest appearance, and I'm happy and honored to return. You're, You're leading, leading with the, the standings. Rap. I think you, you and Jim Aloisi are leading in the standings of guests. Just appearance. August individuals. <laughs> yeah, just uh, uh, men of um, men of urban cores and cities and appreciations for them. I think I like that. Appropriate. Yeah. Okay you i guess like the general like theme of today is like how our cities have been doing what are the positives what are the negatives how do you think jersey city has been doing uh in this year after uh last episode that you were here Mm -hmm. and you know what is the general theme of it Mm -hmm. so the general theme i think of jersey city the new york area and i think cities across the country is we're dealing with a series of narratives or narrative shifts, if you will. So pre-pandemic, the narrative of cities, Jersey City, New York City, other successful cities, but even cities that were struggling, it seemed to be that there was a story of renewal and growth alongside uh, concerns over displacement and inequality. And runaway development as well. Last year when we talked, the narrative seemed to be that cities were empty, emptying, excuse me, that cities were imperiled due to COVID, COVID-related re- fears, and the general national environment, if you will. Now, it seems as the narrative is shifting again. And it seems as if cities, excuse me, the narrative is shifting again in the sense that cities have recovered from the pandemic, populations have returned. New York City, um, other cities that saw population exoduses, exodus is, excuse me, during the pandemic, have seen their populations return. The neighborhoods have rebounded. Real estate development seems to have rebounded. However, what we're seeing is the gains of cities in the last 20 years seem to be more precarious than we might have expected, maybe we'd like to admit, and I'm thinking of local economies, I'm thinking of public safety. Um, so that, that to me seems to be the narrative right now. It went from being one of renewal to being one of decline to being something more uncertain. 
and we're still amid the pandemic. We don't know where this is ultimately going to take us. Um, and we see that in New York City with the election of Mayor, Mayor Adams. He's attempting to address some of these concerns. I just heard him on an interview in NPR before I joined you. And that's my general overall take on cities. Now, where's Jersey City right now? Um, we could look at this a couple different ways. I think where we are from where we sit from last year, I mean, certainly in a better place. Again, just everywhere else, the people are out, people feel a little more confident, but we're recovering from the latest surge of the variant where Jersey City did not have a mask mandate, unlike New York City. So uh, New Jersey in general, and I think uh, Babu probably could weigh on this as well, has been much more lax, I think, as far as um, moderate, I don't want to say monitoring behavior, but sort of encouraging ideal public behavior, where when, I guess it was May or June, uh, Governor Murphy pulled back all the different restrictions we had, they have not been re-entered. Now, other municipalities in New Jersey have reacted to the latest surge, uh, they've enacted mass mandates. I know Patterson has, I know Newark has, I know Asbury Park has. Jersey City has not. Jersey City has had a very hands-off, laissez-faire approach to the pandemic at this point. I'm not sure what drives that. Uh, I could offer some speculations, but there would just be that specu speculation. So I don't really want to put those out there to a general very public. Fair. Very I think fair. a big part of that would be uh, the election years, right? Well, I think in New Jersey, yes. So they, they we had a very maybe close not Jersey City, election. but like the gubernatorial, like you just said. Certainly, yeah. and the result of it. I mean, um, for those listening who don't know, New Jersey has an off-year election. So we had an election this year, one year after the presidential election, and our current governor Phil Murphy was slated to be a runaway victor. The polls had him up by anywhere between ten and fifteen percent, I believe. Um, he ended up winning by slightly less than 3%. And it was not officially, I, I think that he wasn't declared an official winner until I believe a day or two afterwards by the AP. Um, and when you look at the numbers, he had a higher voter turnout than he did in 2017, I think by 100,000 100, votes, something like that. Yeah. Uh, he was the only Democrat reelected since 1977. Um, he was also, I think, the second governor of the party in the White House elected in New Jersey since 1985, if I'm not mistaken. That was when a former governor, Thomas Kane, was elected. Um, when Reagan was president, they were both Republicans. But that may, that may be part of what pushing policy at the state level, that there was election year. Yeah. He was trying to shore up his support. And now I think the election was so close that there is some fear of the electorate in New Jersey, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, yeah. but uh, maybe in this realm, fear shouldn't not be driving public health policy. What do you think about the ward map in Jersey City? I don't know if you want to give, Took I don't know much. So I can so talk like, for a minute. I would just like to hear your, your thoughts on it. Cause I only um, know. No, uh, I think, I think actually this ties up with some of the themes of your, your podcast about local government and, mm -hmm. and like, um, yeah. You know, I'm not as up to snuff on Jersey City politics as I was when I lived there, but, um, you know, I don't interact on Twitter much anymore, but I still go on every once in a while. And I noticed a lot of traffic coming up about the meeting, I guess they held, I think it was a Saturday mm -hmm. where they were hearing, you know, public comments on the word map. And I guess there was a designated committee to do this. I don't know the rules around this. I don't know if this is something they do after every census or if they do it more frequently. Um, but it seemed like there was a significant boisterous amount of opposition and that the committee, you know, didn't really take that into consideration. It was just kind of a for show. But um, I don't know if your district was in your ward was impacted. You know, I know certain certain northern part of downtown that ward e i think that is now a different ward but you know it seems like the more south and west of the city was was impacted and how their map was redrawn but so just interested in your take on no it. so so for those listening um we uh jersey city do the 2020 census as in any uh political entity whether it's state county 
or city had to redraw its uh, electoral maps. Uh, in this case, it's our wards. And you, you, were, at, you were asking like how, what the process is. So my understanding, and if someone's listening, I can correct me. Uh, I'm sure they will on Twitter or a comment on your podcast is that uh, in New Jersey, there's a county board of elections in each county. And in, in Hudson County, with Jersey cities in Hudson County, uh, there are six Democrats, there are six Republicans, uh, they're all gubernatorial appointees. And then the city clerk sits on uh, the board as well, presumably as a tie-breaking vote if it comes to that. And Jersey City's seen population growth, growth excuse me, in the last 10 years. And that population effectively has to be closely distributed throughout each ward. So each ward roughly is 49,000 people. I think it's actually 48,865 to be precise, but we'll just say 49,000 uh, for, for simplicity's sake. And this did reshape the ward districts. Now I am in ward C, even I live in the Heights, but I'm in ward C and ward C is the journal square ward. That's what dominates that ward. And I've never, I've now always wondered why I'm not in ward D, um, but that's the, that's the way it is. Uh, as you point out, part of downtown, which is ward E, uh, part of that was carved up and put it into Ward D, and that was part of the Newport area, which is the area we've talked about. It's office towers, apartment buildings, uh, primarily new construction from the 80s onward. Uh, but but the dis district that was redrawn that caused the real outcry was Ward F. So Ward F uh, is south of downtown, uh, along the waterfront, and then inward, inland a little bit. And that's been, historically, there's a large black community there. I actually don't know what the demographic breakdown is, but it's it's certainly a large historic black population. Um, and what I think drew the criticism w was and is, is that the, in, the newly elected councilmen uh, defeated a, uh, a, the current, the, the past, excuse me, the newly elected councilman, Frank Gilmore, defeated uh, Jermaine Robinson. Who was who ran on the mayor's slate? He was an incumbent councilman person. He was aligned with the mayor, and he was defeated. And now a newcomer comes in, and his district is chopped up. And it was seen as creating a more uh, hospitable ward for the mayor and his uh, excuse me, the mayor and Hudson County Democratic Organization candidates moving forward. Now, what I think this shows, and I think this dovetails with the theme of your show, is really the importance of local government, where redistricting is always at the local level or the state level, but all the attention goes to the federal federal offices in our country. And um, case in point, I, I mean, maybe the largest, one of the most, uh, excuse me, <laughs> one of the cases that stand on my mind of this is all the money that was poured into the Senate race in 2020 in Kentucky, uh, where Amy McGrath ran against Mitch McConnell. She raised, I think, 80, 90 million dollars. Oh, yeah. Like, there was no was chance of her. Be, she was never no chance of winning. She lost by 20 percentage points that same year. And the Kentucky House of Representatives, the Republicans won a supermajority, effectively allowing the override. Well, not effectively, it does allow them to override the video, the veto of the, the governor of the state. Now, if more attention was paid to local races, just in that districts in that state alone, that would shift the balance of power and pouring money, pouring resources in the local races would shift the statewide balance of power. But that also shifts the federal balance of power, because as we all know, congressional districts are cut at the state level. Um, and then again, I think this question of redistricting and just Jersey City map, it shows the power of local politics and the reason why we need to pay attention to local po politics. But um, that that was my summation of the redistricting convert controversy here in Jersey City. Controversy, excuse me, I'm getting tired. Uh, controversy in Jersey City that one, it seemed opaque, but I've never thought redistricting was anything but opaque. So that doesn't necessarily surprise me. Yeah. But the fact that the main target seemed to be an incoming council person uh, who defeated uh, a sitting council person who was aligned with the mayor. So making that district more friendly to candidates aligned with the mayor or with the Democratic Party establishment in Hudson County and Jersey City. <laughs> I know that's confusing to all <laughs> many people. I mean, it's but. not. It's it, it is very. It, certainly the redistricting process in New Jersey is certainly complicated. I mean, allowing both parties to really dictate that when really 
you know, it comes down to, I, I mean, I know it's been updated since the last time, but even on the, on the Jersey congressional maps being like, this is what they're going to be. And it's because of a coin toss, essentially mm-hmm. saying, well, they had it last year. We'll give it to them this year. Of course, now there's being in demand to write a legal like mandate on this logic, but I, I'm not, it's, I feel like a redistrict, redistricting is a thing that we always try and pay attention to. And there's always some weird quirk that comes out of it. I certainly can't say anything about Boston right now because we haven't had that conversation, but on like a statewide level, like the biggest redistricting issue we were facing was between the communities of Fall River and New Bedford, which are on the South shore. They're separated uh, within separated by congressional districts, but they both represent a majority of uh I guess the Portuguese population, there's a large Portuguese population mm-hmm. in these communities. And so it's been a big effort for people to try and get these two towns to combine into one congressional district. So they have a larger voice instead of feeling like they've been separated. So they do not. And that didn't happen this year, but the vocal, uh, op- the vocal opposition to the way the map were presented this time around, were certainly more clear in the South shore than anywhere else and i was just like i found that as a very interesting um tidbit in regards to what was going on with redistricting as a whole when we do boston's i'm sure i'll have some commentary about it but we haven't even crossed that bridge yet um because everybody was so focused with covid so Mm -hmm. for lack of better words do you think that redistricting in new jersey and jersey city's map was rigged um (laughs) i don't know if it was rigged i it's a political process i haven't really it's a political process. Um, <laughs> yeah, you can only have neutrality to a point when it comes to redistricting, correct? Um, and I think that, again, this shows the importance of local races. If you want to control the redistricting, redistricting process, you need to win races. Gotta write the, you got to yeah. rack up the score at that, that, that point. You rack up the um, score. And again, that, and I mean, that in the 2020 election cycle, uh, the Democrats thought they were going to pick up state houses uh, um, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Texas, uh, I think even West Virginia. They, and that would have changed the, the table as far as redistricting and who had the advantage weighted on their side. They didn't pick those seats up. So if more money had been poured into those local races, resources, whether that's uh, people, yeah. volunteers, it might have you know, moved it in one direction or another, but it didn't happen. Um, and that's been, I think, one of the faults flaws of the democratic party for some time that there, ha- there has not been attention to the small board races whether that's board of ed whether that's state assembly whether that's city council people or that's county officials yes the next thing that i would love for us to discuss and i know that like i am an infamous like transit snob and i expect mm-hmm. everything to work right but I, I think that our cities have certainly tried to find a way to maximize or at least attempt to maximize options and availability at the expense of cuts. I say that because all I keep hearing about is a new green line extension in my neighborhood. And yet we're going to continue to do laps about getting this extension Mm -hmm. done. Um, I can count that as a highlight that is taking place during COVID. Like they actually built this this extension during COVID throughout all the risk i can compliment that Mm. i think in boston we're also doing like a free uh fare free bus route for some of our lowest income riders that is something that we've been trying to do for a very long time for transit gurus there is an encouragement on bus lanes and there's an encouragement on traffic redesign i think one of the big issues that we're experiencing right now in transit is giving people what they want and then when they actually look at what they asked for and they push back on those things i don't want to call it necessarily a nimby aspect but there's this amazing transit redesign that's going to take place on blue hill avenue and blue hill avenue is the main one of the main avenues that serves a majority of our african-american our immigrant populations it's very like low income like it's not i'm not trying to like generalize it but this is what it is consistently classified as. Could you describe where that is in Boston? Like Just in so Roxbury, I can get a... oh, it's, okay. it, it is very, it is one of the longest. It is one of the longest and also one of the most traffic ridden roads that we have. And one of the issues with it 
has been that traffic problem. Now it's interesting that this project that we have wanted to do for a long time has been going back since Barack Obama's American Reinvestment Act, where we've been wanting to like reimagine our streets. This project has been going on forever. And now when a massive amount of cash is in flux into making this project happen, there is this like neighborhood uproar that takes place against this project being built off of what I'd like to say are a very few people who are actively trying to like improve the situation, but just enable people to bitch and complain about it. This traffic redesign was going to encourage centralized bus lanes. Now we've already have in New England, we already, we're, we're the first city to have them because they're being, they already exist. Now we want to do it again. And it turns into this conversation about, and I have to quote our amazing, not amazing, but I have to quote our representative, Russell Holmes, who represents this district being like, it's amazing at how when you guys complain about something and we actually deliver it to you, you all come in and complain about how we're delivering it. They wanted this traffic. What's the NIMBY's? The NIMBY's issue the is. pushback? So the pushback, and this is where it's weird to explain this pushback because some of it is Facebook-based, and we all know how much we feel about Facebook being a reliable source of mm. neighborhood information. But or any all, information. Or any information. But there was this idea that this traffic redesign was just going to take away parking spaces, and it was going to gentrify the neighborhood, and it was going to make commutes longer because everybody in the neighborhood has a car and doesn't use the bus, which is not based in any reality whatsoever because a majority of the lines that go down Blue Hill Avenue are actually regularly used. Like, it's not some, like, myth that 50 people on a bus can move faster than four people in a car. And mm -hmm. instead, there's this massive movement to be against it. And I just couldn't believe at how much Ayanna Presley was behind this project, and yet people were still against it for the sake of riling people up. Like, I... I am a massive advocate of traffic, of, of fixing things and making daily life easier. And I couldn't believe that there were a group of like low income people who are actively fighting against making their lives easier. They owned a car when they don't own a car and they were complaining about something. I, I, one of the questions during this town hall was about primaries in elections. That's not what the purpose of this town hall was about, but it turned into that because that's what these people who organize these things do. And the entire point, of, and what I was amazed about in the conclusion of this town hall was how many people spoke in support of this project when it was being presented as a way to complain about the project. The fact that the turnout was actually more in favor of the traffic redesign than against it comes to show you that there is this element of anger that exists <laughs> in social media and in community meetings and in your community mm -hmm. feedback that is not just is not based in reality and mm -hmm. i am where the money is that's where the money is though and so people make people make a fuck ton of money off of people being angry look at they, you know they build a brand off of being angry and they get they and they're enabled by city councilors who say that we want to be solutions-based oriented but you know that you're not organizing a situation for that push comes to shove there needs to be some recognition that when we are talking about redoing our cities, it is not necessarily redoing them so people can continue to get polluted by, you know, shit in the mm -hmm. air. You know, it is not so you can continue to wait 20 extra minutes for a bus when you should be flying down the street. It is not about parking spaces so you can get to your roti spot faster. You know, and it is it is about saying if you live in your neighborhood. You should be able to take a bus to go down the street to your favorite local place. You do not need to go in your car. And yet there is this culture that exists in Boston where for some reason you still need to get in your car. We are fixing this situation. I think situation. the same culture afflicts us here in Jersey City where... Does it? Any, any development that's happening, one of the number one concerns is there aren't enough parking spots. There are only... There are 10 units in this new building, but only three parking spots. There should be a one-to-one -one ratio. They're going to be parking in the streets. We're taking my parking spot. As if parking spots were this gift, you know, sprinkled down upon us by the gods from high. But also, this is this is not what city living is about. If you want to, if you would like a parking spot, the suburbs are where you can be. But just just to echo what you were saying, scam. Uh, we had municipal elections uh, last year as well, um, in the fall. 
And we had council candidates running on mint running on ensuring that we had ample street parking or we had municipal parking garages. That's crazy. That's crazy. In, in, in an era where car ownership is certainly going down in urban areas and it's certainly going down in incoming generations, younger generations, people younger than any of us, um, people moving, in, moving into Jersey City now, moving into New York, don't have a car, probably don't have an intention of buying a car anytime soon. And I really don't have anything more to say about that. I, I think I'm just echoing, echoing, excuse me. I, I, I think, yeah, scam, I think but it's a similar, it's a similar situation. I think in so many cities where um, people want to maintain whatever um, vision of the city that they have, whether that vision ever existed or it's frozen at a certain time. Um, you brought up a, I'm sorry, but you brought up a great point about the electoral, like election cycles mm -hmm. happen. And there were people in your races in Jersey City that were running on a pro parking platform, yep. essentially, like or as a pro parking issue. Yeah. Whereas here in Massachusetts, here in Boston, like Michelle Wu's entire platform has been about making this city accessible. There were p these mm -hmm. same people who organized the town hall were Michelle Wu supporters and damn well knew that like these kinds of things were in the pipeline. Like they were in. They supported them because- Oh, so the people that, that, that- Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So the NIMBY people were also aligned with the mayor. Of course. The new mayor. Michelle, Michelle Wu oh, won with a mandate in some of these neighborhoods that were absolutely mind-blowing and astonishing. And then when the actual plans that she has presented throughout her career come to fruition, you all freak out? Like, I can't. I You know, it just gets to this point where it's like, I, I've realized that a lot of our local anger- isn't based on circumstances of of anything more than what do i get out of it and i wow. am amazed yeah. at how often the one thing that people thought about most out of what they got out of it is how does it benefit my car you uh, i mean i don't it's nowhere near the level you're describing but i know within my neighborhood in jersey city there's been some bike lanes um, constructed in jersey city and whole and anytime that happens people what, what that's taking away three parking spots or that's taking away two parking spots and there's no thought of what you were saying as you were saying to the larger public good if we give people more transit options whether that's by really with the viable mass transit is what jersey city needs more than anything not everyone can bike not everyone wants to bike um if you have small children or groceries you can't necessarily be on your bicycle but um it's all through this prism of the automobile uh, as if the city, the city was not built for the automobile. Any older city in the northeastern United States was constructed Boston, prior not meant for to the, the automobile, automobile at all. Prior to the automobile, um, and but but it's encouraging to hear that you're having these robust transit investments. I wish the same thing was happening here. Um, mass transit has been discouraging. Uh, it has been a mess. I think as long as I've lived in Jersey City, the refrain you often hear, you always hear. From elected officials is oh, new jersey transit the state agency we have no control over that as if elected officials aren't there to push and pull with state officials to get resources and the resources in this instance is bus routes and what jersey city attempted to do and this is right before the pandemic so early last uh, early 2020 i was going to say early last year um was in the system is, time doesn't exist anymore david <laughs> Right, I know. Well, just somewhere in the the it all the blends 20s. together. Yeah, somewhere in this decade that we're all in institute a system, and I think we talked about this on your program two years ago. Um, Via, which is effectively vans ferrying people from predetermined drop-off points throughout the city, and it's app-driven. Um, the limitation that is one, they're vans. There's only so many people you can fit in a van. Where a bus, you can fit. I don't know how many dozens of people, 50 people, really and that's, 50, that's like not a double 50 bus. people to 10 people. Right. So, yeah. um, where a van, what would maybe four people, and we have to presume they're going in the same direction. Hours are limited. So it's a band-aid. It's not a, a, it's not a long-term fix. The only real long-term fix is to actually get a, a transit system, a bus system that works in Jersey City. I mean, it, it's easier for me to get into New York City than is to get in downtown Jersey City where I live, which is absurd what is the time where downtown city is literally a mile a mile and a half away it's yeah, quicker for me to walk time difference it's how long is like if you didn't want to walk how long would it take using transit? oh if i took i can get a bus into new york city two blocks from my house oh, and shit. i would be in new york city 
20 or 30 minutes. Really? Okay. If the bus that leaves uh, from my house to downtown Jersey City might come once an hour. What? Yes. <laughs> what the fuck? Now, okay. Yeah, okay. I can walk to the light rail down in Hoboken, and that's still half a mile walk. And again, these some of these transit options that have been po- uh, presented to us, biking, um, which I, I enjoy biking, that is an option. That's not available to everyone. And in the winter. And in the winter, right? So some people physically might not be able to. They might be elderly. They might forget where uh, you are. Pregnant. To go downtown. Uh, it's a hill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You you just live downtown. You know. It, it's it's called the Heights for a reason. Right. You know? um, so, but like, we don't. We just. We just do not have. Yeah. Intercity bus. bus transit system and yeah. intra city, and that's. Oh, yeah, and yeah. that's and that's definitely one of the things holding Jersey City back, in my opinion, is that if all the neighborhoods were stitched together with viable transit all those neighborhoods benefit from that economically uh, development oh, yeah. from development people from going out at night being, people going um, out at night it would be so much better right and yeah. right and the city just has not and that's i guess a sign of development um running at a faster pace than the, in, the infrastructure of the city in this case to be transit so i'm encouraged by what's happening in boston i wish it was yeah. happening here i mean i mean <laughs> i i think again we we're being rewarded for having a mayor that rides public transportation regularly. Um, and for some reason, and I still don't know why he interacts with people on the T in the morning, like as if anybody should be doing she that. She was but, just elected, right? So it won't last. So, I mean, yeah, like, I guess it's like, <laughs> like I'm, I'm certainly telling her like, do not do that. Do not bother me on my dreadful way, way to work, but okay. But I mean, when you have that kind of inspiration, it certainly, affects things it certainly moves things like you can't do a fare free 28 bus if you're not talking to the t as an organization to execute that granted the t might not necessarily want to do it but when you can get the federal transit authority to say that using you know federal funds to like pilot this is actually not a bad thing it's not wrong go ahead and do it man that must feel really fucking good as mayor knowing that you are influencing decision making on a something that you have believed in for a very long time and when you can inspire i think it's like 13 other communities to like engage in this conversation about fare free transit around you man that's not just being the mayor of a city but that's being a regional mm-hmm. mayor and I think that's what everybody has always wanted in our past mayors, whether it's like Marty Walsh being more involved and being more aggressive about the crisis that we have been in in regards to housing, transit, whatnot, just be present, just be there. And now you have a mayor in the city that for some reason knows how to just kind of be in it. And mm-hmm. so we're seeing those rewards for that. Am I necessarily saying she's doing great on everything? No, but when it came to transit, my God, I am... I am shocked at how much effort she has taken into executing that. And I think that, you know, at some point I would love for my new orange line trains to be more frequent. I would love my, you know, red, new red line trains to exist, you know, but right now there is something that is happening in regards to transit and traffic and pushing back on cars and making Mm -hmm. our roads more accessible for people, closing them down and like closing down some of our major streets and opening them up to people is just like such a cool idea. And I think that Mm -hmm. she is empowered to do that and she will continue to do that. I also don't think we can just like sit here and talk about like transit because I think another thing- That'd be a whole, yeah. The transit foamers would listen. But I think think the other final thing that kind of (laughs) connects to all that is like our housing crisis and how we enjoy our neighborhoods more. I know for certain that New York rents and New Jersey rents, mortgages, housing costs, and, and, that, and all across are not going down. Like right now, Boston for sure might have the third highest rents in the country right now. After like a recent report that was just like, oh man, after a COVID crisis, you need to tell me that rents are still going up at the rate that they are, like 27% too. Pretty freaking wild. Which belies the narrative of last year that cities were dying. That cities yeah. were emptying out. Apparently so people are uh, coming back to them. So right. you know, it's not. Or who is coming back to these cities? Very clearly, mm-hmm. rich people. Because I don't necessarily mm-hmm. think there is an affordable housing development boom that needs to happen. Certainly, can tout that we are. And that, and that ultimately to... is the only. And I'm painting with a very broad brush here, but that ultimately is the only solution to the housing crisis. Is somehow his the the free market is not meeting. The free it, market it will has not failed. present a solution. No, drastic. And there was a time in our there was a time in our history in this country where the free market did construct housing for multiple income levels. 
um, not necessarily the poorest of the poor, but uh, working class, middle class could find places in our cities, affordable and decent spaces, apartments or, or single family homes or multifamily homes. That doesn't seem to be happening. So the only, and again, I'm painting with a broad brush here and I'm just, um, but the only, the only real viable solution is there has to be a commitment to affordable housing, you know, however that is defined. Um, and also some, some way of controlling rent. And we, we rent saw control, that during the pandemic, like right. Rent control, <laughs> um, which Boston did have at one point, um, New York city still has rent control and, uh, there's two tiers of that. Was it rent control and rent stabilized? Rent control, and re- like rent rent control rent stabilized, right? Yep, yep, right. Yep. Two different things, yeah. Um, so in New York, and I'm probably, I can't remember if I'm twisting the terms around, but rent control, most of those predate World War II and rent stabilization. That's predating World War II and then right. everything after that was stabilized. And then everything else, it's your rent goes up a certain percentage point. And, and that is the only way to get a handle on this. Um, or somehow the federal government or the state government uh, makes it lucrative for developers to build affordable housing. And, sure. and uh, what we have seen, I think in Jersey City, especially, I know in Jersey City, I can't speak about other municipalities is, um, and we've talked about this multiple times on your program. I know that, you know, I know you've talked about it with different guests that developers will um, receive certain uh, uh, tax benefits or certain uh, giveaways, for lack of a term, from the city. You love giving out abatements. Tax yes. abatements. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. See, I'm a little rusty in my my vernacular here, uh, my urban vernacular. Um, with the agreement of constructing a certain percentage of affordable housing, and what invariably happens is developer comes back says we can't make it work with the numbers, and nine times out of ten, um, the city agrees to that and allows them to give money to what is called the affordable housing trust. And where is that money going? Are they constructing units with that? I don't know. Probably not. Probably not. But, but that's um, one, one, I know in the much maligned and stagnated build back better bill, there was the largest investment in in affordable housing uh, or some in easily a generation, easily probably since LBJ's great society. Um, so that might have helped and the nas- nationally. Uh, and I don't know the full mechanics of that. I was trying to bone on about that before we, t- we talked, um, but I didn't have time. So I apologize to you, to your listeners. Um, but and yeah, the no, the housing, housing is that, that is the crisis, right? I, I was listening again. I was listening to NPR before uh, I joined you and they were talking about housing prices and whether that's rentals or uh, home ownership in the country. And it continues to go up and it continues to be inaccessible to uh, new, new people entering the market. Um, that's I mean, a no, classic supply and demand issue, right? right? So the inventory is just so low construction yeah. costs and now inflation just make it possible to build. Know, yeah. Make that developer argument more, oh, it's not as feasible. But I think, you know, we've given developers a long enough time frame to try and figure out how to make affordability feasible. I personally think, yeah, you like I think in World War II, after World War II, there was a housing shortage and you had mm-hmm. people coming home. You had obviously a baby boom, people starting families, you know, that translated into the suburbs of what we know being created. But also that largely happens because the government was heavily involved. In yes. Subsidy. And then you see the redlining and the racism that. You know, they have it in covenants that black people couldn't live in specific neighborhoods. And if they did, they would the developer wouldn't get a federally backed loan essentially to do subdivision. But I think now it has to there has to be some sort of government incentive towards people who lend money for housing construction because no developer is doing it out of the pocket mm-hmm. out of their pocket and out of their coffers. They they have a massive amount of money that they get at the beginning of the project to bring that to fruition if there's something to sweeten the pot for people who lend for affordability reasons and say hey this you know your established rent or whatever it may be can only be x amount of you know i mean the average medium median household income in this country is not high no i mean if you unless you're unless you're a Wharton student yeah then you think (laughs) then you think it's what half a million dollars that person should have just been like expelled on the spot. Whoever said eight hundred thousand dollars, I would have been like, get, yeah. I been like, just get like the fuck everybody's out cooking, of everybody's cooking money up. Like everybody's yeah. just like everybody's got money to burn. Two like, two really? practicing two two practicing physicians would not be earning eight hundred thousand dollars. That that's the realities of it. That's what the crazy right. like. There's the scale that I think that's the only way. Exist. Though. Yeah, I, I think well, that's the only way because uh, they control the money. 
they do. If they, I mean, they have the money that they lend for these projects. If you make it more feasible for them to be like, right. hey, we can, it's some sort of government backing for them, and they still make their money. How else are you gonna? Well, do I think it? I, I think yeah, I think we're all in agreement. There has to be some strong public policy. Yeah, I mean, up here in, in, involved in this. Uh, and again, you point out World War II that after World War II, the, the federal government was involved in housing at every level. So that was the most public housing built at any given time following World War II. Um, public housing geared to middle-class family after World War II in New York City, Stytown, Peter Cooper Village. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, the suburbs, that was all subsidized via the federal government directly or the GI Bill um, or elements of the GI Bill. Um, I, I, now, I land was that. cheaper then, so there is that. <laughs> There's just an element, that... but for those for those listening, there's a great book, um, and I and I know I'm going aside here called The Color of Law, and that details the historic redlining. It came out several years ago. Um, Richard Rothstein recommended everyone reading it. Richard yeah. Rothstein, yes, Richard great Rothstein. book. Yeah, yeah, great book. Um, very detailed and really, and I know maybe uh, we're <laughs> uh, we would be maligned as uh, trafficking in uh, critical race theory, whatever that actually. Yeah, is, they would definitely I'm accuse us. I'm not certain yeah. myself, but uh, but uh, it, it's a great historic analysis of redlining in this country and how um, Black Americans were denied the right effectively to build wealth via home ownership. One of the we're trying to bring back rent control here in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. We got rid of it through public referendum you know, public voted on it and got rid of it back in like 1993. And now every uh, legislative cycle, you know, there's just like this gang of housing advocates that like to bring up rent control and the tenant's right to purchase mm -hmm. uh, as a way to like kind of combat this like displacement crisis that we existed in, this housing crisis that we existed in. Whereas like some of the more moderate Republicans would like to present a very aggressive housing choice policy where it's kind of like changing the zoning laws within our local zoning board mm -hmm. where you just need a simple majority of them to vote on a project, not a three-fourths, which could just like any one person could just kill a project. So affordable housing in your 95% white neighborhoods or suburbs throughout greater Boston, we're certainly not going to feel inclined to build something like that uh, with a three-fourths majority. So if you can change that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and the New York Times had a, a great story about that uh, on yeah. sort of the maybe hypocrisy is too song a bird. But oh, yeah. I in mean, blue in blue areas that, that there's not that people, excuse me, blue in blue areas primarily. And he was focusing on blue areas. And mm -hmm. I'm sure we could look at red areas and we see this. Oh, yeah. You see the same data. Yeah. But pe see people espousing um, liberal views or progressive views on race, on mm -hmm. equality. But when it comes to actually building development that might ease the pressures uh, in, reg in regards to inequality. Yeah. Then that's when everyone's a NIMBY. And, yeah. <laughs> and um, there's a great story about a great New York Times and a short video showing development in California, how people would fight building on just one lot to create senior housing. Yeah. Thinking, yeah. Oh, it's going to tear, building tear it up. the neighborhood yeah, building it, like, It's going it to change like yeah, yeah. the fabric, yeah. you know, change the neighborhood where people feel safe and can walk around uh, with their children at night and, and so on and so forth. Um, but, but, but again, um, Development alone, I don't think will solve it because if we look in our cities, there's plenty of development happening and there's plenty of dense development happening. But who is that mixed use marketed towards? It's the big term is now mixed use housing, where you're well, seeing a lot of uh, mixed income housing. Mixed, in mixed income, no more like you know, in our urban cores, you're certainly seeing them build up like a retail section on the first floor. Oh, mixed use, sure, mixed yeah. use. You're just seeing oh, yeah. them build those next like 20 floors up. You know, within those 20 floors that maybe 30 of them are going to be affordable housing units, mm -hmm. but really the rest of them are going to be market rate. And I, I, right. I'm not going to follow into this trap. Again, the common question we ask here is who can define affordable and what is affordable in 2022 nowadays? Because mm -hmm. nobody's wages have gone up necessarily to combat the cost of these things. And they'll say, well, you got to pick up your bootstraps and you got to like go put yourself in more school debt and you got to get a better education and shit like that. When I think the issue exists very clearly, some people like where they live. <laughs> like, well, and they don't want to move, right? And then they got to move. And uh, we still have not answered these questions about affordability. We're constantly presenting ways to combat displacement, but we're not finding ways to secure or redefine affordability.
I mean, the AMI in Boston, we all know for our routine listeners are very familiar with like that as a housing term and whatnot. And the AMI for Boston incorporates basically all of the communities within greater Boston, not Boston itself where you would certainly get a lower mm. number. So everything is out of whack. I remember seeing someone post about how in Seattle, the cheapest house to buy was $500,000. And it was literally a rinky dink shithole like fixer upper. And then they <laughs> were like, so can someone explain to me though, why this house costs $500,000, but they keep building luxury condos like everywhere else. Mm. And it's I the, and I it's the land beneath it. It's the it's land develop, beneath it. It's the development potential of the land. So it is while I am very supportive of rent control and I'm very supportive of rent stabilization and I hope it passes, I've also seen this act happen for several years by the same players, and the legislature mm-hmm. certainly hasn't changed enough to look like me and these ideas to say, we're not gonna just build our way out of this housing crisis. We're not gonna find housing for everybody. So there's gotta be a way where we can actually maintain what we have now for people that are in their homes and then build more for those that don't that need to find more affordability out of it there's just so many options that exist out there and the way that we keep presenting them is by saying well if you make enough money you can buy the property you're on when let's face it the places that people are living in now it's not like they have a down payment just laying around for this for their tenants right to purchase as soon as they're told they're being you know thrown out because it's being sold and and also philosophically speaking home ownership shouldn't be the only option it should not you, it should not be the only if you, wealth if you, creator right if you want to have and there and there's there's we can make the argument i think what on both sides whether home ownership is actually good or bad as far as generating wealth i mean there's plenty of people that would argue that it's actually better for you financially to not own a home in the sense that that's money you have free money that's freed up for all sorts of investments for travel for um also you don't have to manage home repairs so but the, uh, the idea that home ownership should be the end be an end all for everyone i think is something we as americans need to move away from and when we look at our cities um i mean new york jersey city majority of people are still renters i i don't know what it is in boston i imagine it's probably heavily renters heavily renter heavily renter yeah, DC is literally a whole neighborhood dedicated um, to it. You know, like that's what um, it is. So that that might be something that we might need to move away from as far as uh, talking about housing, talking about housing options. That maybe ownership isn't the goal for everyone, and being a renter isn't something that should be frowned upon or looked down upon. Where and in by and large, outside of major cities in the United States, um, when you're a renter, you're seen as uh, I don't know, maybe something shifty about you. I mean, I'm sure there's other words I could I could come up with, but it's definitely, shall we say, lesser class or lower class. Um, where in Boston or New York, that's not the case. I mean, they're if not the majority of people are renters, then a plurality of the people mm-hmm. are renters. Um, I mean, I apologize I'm meandering here, but I, I don't know what the solution is to the housing crisis. Um, but clearly, what we've been doing the last 20 years has not helped the situation. Um, and, and I'm not certain we can build or as we were saying, I'm not sure building alone will do it, but it, might, it, it has to be a combination of uh, more housing, but also with some degree of direction by the government, whether that's local governments, by state governments, uh, federal governments, really not in the housing market, housing game, with the exception of public housing, which even those are managed by local authorities. Federal government just has some overseeing. Little Birdie also told me that you're writing a book, and I mean, I mean, the first time that I am podcast, I am. Thank you. So welcome. So yeah, thank you. One, thank you for asking. I am working on now my second book, and we talked about my first book on my first appearance on Show Ugly. Um, And my book is tentatively entitled Midnight Rambles: H.P. Lovecraft in Gotham. And H.P. Lovecraft, for those of you who don't know, um, was a Providence-based writer. I know you were saying you've been making some of Providence lately. So I could actually point you out to some Lovecraft spots to, um, maybe after we're, some other time. Uh, Providence, Providence, Rhode Island based writer. He lived most of his life in New England. Um, I often say he's the most famous writer you have never heard of. His imprint is deep and wide in our popular culture and in our uh, even high literary culture. You see him in the films of Guillermo del Toro. You see it in uh, Batman. You uh, see it in literature. I, I just finished up Archive, Archive 81. The other, excuse me, Archive 81 the other night. You can see it there. Uh, and what he did was he crafted his own genre in a way that he entitled weird fiction, which is a blend of science fiction, horror fiction, 
uh, folklore even. And he's famous for an interlocking series of stories or loosely interlocking series of stories that we now call the Cthulhu mythos where uh, an unfortunate person, often a professor or a scientist happens upon a cult or some individual involved with uh, extraterrestrial beings that prove our insignificance in the universe. Um, but my book is about H.P. Lovecraft's time in New York City. He moved to New York in 1924, and he lived in New York uh, until 1926. Actually, he lived in Brooklyn, so you could argue he was a proto-hipster. And he came to New York to um, marry a woman, uh, a, wom a fashionable uh, milliner, hat maker, and to chase the writer's life. It worked out uh, a little differently than he planned. Uh, but what this book's about and why I'm researching it, why I'm writing it, why I hope people ultimately read it, is one that I am presenting the case that Lovecraft's time in New York City is what, in a sense, formed him as the writer he came to be. It formed his sensibility as a writer. Uh, moving away from New England and living in New York for two years uh, provided him with the distance to actually then mine New England for creative material. And when he moved back to New England in 1926, his stories were almost exclusively set in New England. Yeah. Um, and you can make the argument that the world building yeah you could argue they were the character in his stories uh also when he lived in new york city it was the only time he lived as a true bohemian uh he lit he was part of a, a writer's circle a group of friends a group of men who were writers and booksellers and poets uh, they called themselves the calum club and that was a play on their last names it was the only time he was part of any sort of creative circle and the only time I think he really had a taste of what it would have been like to be a writer in a big city. He spent nights at automats. He hung out in museums. He took trips to the Hudson River Valley, to New Jersey, to Long Island with his friends. Uh, he saw one of his friends almost every day. Um, when he moved back to Providence, he lived a fairly solitary life there. He lived with an elderly aunt. He would venture out of town occasionally to have town people visiting him, but he had an extremely limited social circle there. Also, and this is maybe why I'm the most fit to write this book, um, through his time in New York, Lovecraft, uh, excuse me, all his life, Lovecraft was obsessed with uh, what he would call Georgian antiquities. And that would be architecture or spaces from the uh, colonial, colonial era or early American era in history. And he would explore New York City far and wide, uh, from the Bronx to Staten Island, to Long Island to Elizabeth, New Jersey to find uh, these antiquities as he would call them. So buildings, parks, gardens, even a doorway that carried this aura of the 18th century or the 19th century uh, captivated him. So in a sense, we're walking with Lovecraft. And when we're walking with him, we're also seeing a New York and a, a metropolitan area that's vanished. So New York at this time was still developing. Northern Manhattan, there were pockets of there that were undeveloped. Pockets of Queens, uh, Staten, Staten Island in general was undeveloped. Um, so in a way, it's almost as if we're looking through a window through his writings into this old New York. And I'm leaning heavily on his letters that he wrote when he was in New York City and his diary kept in New York City. Those are the primary documents I'm working with. Um, and I'm finishing up my, my rough draft. Um, the book at this point is slated to come out in early 2024. Um, so it's coming along and... Look at you, right? The yeah. second book, man. I'm yeah, so I'm really excited about you... it. And for anyone who would like a sneak preview of what this book might be about, um, I have a piece in the blog of the Gotham Center for New York City History at CUNY. And I'm also contributing stories to Urban Archive, which is an amazing website that draws together historic images of New York City and some other cities. And you can interact with those images via mapping software. So you can click on an address and see a building. Uh, through time so you can really try time travel if you will through this website so if you are interested in finding out more what this book might be about you're right he is one of the authors that we probably would never really hear about how much was lovecraft country a fun part of like doing this like oh. not, did you watch it and use it as like a mm -hmm. like as a point of reference or was it like mm -hmm. oh this is just great that this is on as i'm writing this book it's great to like mm -hmm. have it all combined into one. Oh, that's an interesting question and it actually Reminds me of a point that I neglected to mention <laughs> when I was giving a summary of a book that uh, for those, you know, for those listening who have not read or, or seen the show Lovecraft Country, um, they're both worth checking out. I prefer the novel over the show. Uh, I thought the show did a really good job capturing the history 
or giving us a sense of what it was like to be uh, black in Jim Crow America. Um, when it got to the science fiction, I felt like it, it went in directions that the book did not. Um, but Lovecraft Country and what that book refers to, and this is a character in, in the, the show and the book, is Lovecraft's writings, but particularly his, his racial leg legacy or racial beliefs, um, if we want to call it that. So for those who are unaware, um, in addition to being a groundbreaking genre writer, Lovecraft was also an unreformed bigot. Um, you can read his stories and not Brutal. really see that. Um, you can read his stories and see it, but I think if you read his stories, any sort of racial stereotypes or ethnic stereotypes are not necessarily abnormal. Um, he was writing in for pulp magazines, um, and those stereotypes were peppered throughout those magazines and, and films from that time, books from that time. So there's nothing necessarily abnormal about that. I'm not trying to downplay it, but if you looked at his fiction alone, I don't think you would necessarily get a full insight to how deep and real and ugly his his bigotry was. Now, when you go into his letters, that's when it is quite vivid and quite um, brutal. Um, private of side of like private side. Um, very like clear on his. It is peppered with. I mean, any racial insults, any ethnic insults. He used um, them all. He used them all, and. Yeah. Why And so the question might be is, why would I want to write about this person? Why should I read about this person? Why should I read his fiction? Um, as far as his fiction, I would argue that this is groundbreaking fiction. But if his uh, personal bigotry is too much for you, I would never try to convince you to read his fiction. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's my place to convince you what to read and what not to read. But why studying him is important, why writing about him is important is that um, we're, it might provide us with a way or a method to process or talk about complicated figures, particularly complicated creative figures in our culture. I mean, we're definitely going through a moment where we're reevaluating historical figures, reevaluating creative figures, and, and trying to balance different elements of their legacies. So um, we could be looking at the founding fathers, we could be looking at um, writers such as Lovecraft, and how... How do we celebrate the things they may have created, whether that's fiction, whether that's um, political documents, political movements, but at the same time acknowledging um, these really ugly personal sides of them, whether that's in the Founding Fathers, some of them owned slaves, um, or someone like Lovecraft, who was a virulent nativist, um, who in his private letters actually talked about um, gassing people on the Lower East Side, who supported lynching. Um, and I'm not exaggerating. I wish that I was. Um, but that was normal um, back then. Too. That's how they <laughs> talked. That's think, how they talked back then. But, you know. But, but yeah. I think um, you're, what you're getting about Lovecraft Country and did that inspire me? Did that motivate me? I, I started working on this book before I read Lovecraft Country, um, before I saw the show. But when we're talking about his racism and you're going through his letters and it's ex again, I, I, it's extremely virulent. It's extremely raw. Um, Ten years ago, I think if we were talking about this. We might also, in a way, mock it or downplay it. You also see it see absurd, as if we we're reading something in an Onion article or some other satirical uh, publication or website. But I think the last several years, the Trump administration, January sixth, um, the killing of George Floyd, and other sordid events in the, our recent history, has revealed that this sort of ugliness, this sort of hatred, isn't past. It's present, and it's part of our DNA. It's part of our political DNA. It's part of our cultural DNA. So looking at someone like Lovecraft, talking about his life, talking about his works and how, how to balance the two might provide us with some way forward, or at least some way to process this um, contradiction in our own, our own national history and national character. Um, and again, how do, we, how do we celebrate the works of complicated if not um, uncomfortable or disturbing figures. And that, that's one thing I'm, I'm hoping my book might be able to contribute to, that, that element of the discourse. You are telling me right now is that in 2022, if H.P. Lovecraft was a real per was live, he would be canceled. Oh, oh, totally. Me. He'd be totally, totally. canceled. Yeah, totally. All right. Canceled. He'd be gone. Yeah. He'd be gone. Right. Canceled. Be gone. Right, I know that's the new thing now in the modern age. We gotta cancel people left and right. Right. He, he would be a guest on Fox News.
Bye.